Well, uh, how ironic is this, um, that we just sang a song uh, about the name, the holiness of the Lord, uh, set apart. He's unlike. He's above and beyond. Uh, He's holy. Um, And yet, here is my opening statement. We are creative geniuses at shrinking God. In light of what we just sang and Pastor Nick leading us in prayer of, um, there's also a reality that's very interesting for us as we, as we declare the great name of our Lord. There's also a reality within every one of us that we have this great creative genius ability to, to actually shrink our God. Maybe to add a little bit of humor to that, in 2010, uh, the cartoon movie Despicable Me came out. And uh, in that movie, there was the SR6 shrink ray gun. And the shrink ray gun could shrink anything to the size of an apple. By the way, how uh, smart is that to be able to put in a child's mind? You, you can see an apple and how big an apple is. It could shrink anything to the size of an apple. And uh, I would just say this, we are amazing SR6s with God and with life. Uh, we have this ability to kind of shrink it into a manageable size, into something that is acceptable to us and is something that is controllable. An apple is the size that every one of us can control. And um, we have that ability to do that with God, we talked about last Sunday essentially, and with life itself, which is really where we're getting at today. We've talked so far about how with this shrinking, this packaging of God and life into what we want to make it into, we've talked so far about how our mission oftentimes becomes God's mission how uh, our desire for the big and the bold, the glitz and the glam becomes his desire. And we're creative geniuses at kind of making our dissatisfaction with our daily grind mundane kind of things that we do to become somehow God's dissatisfaction for the daily grind. And how last Sunday our thoughts become his thoughts. Our means become his means. And our goals become his goals. And we, I think, actually without even thinking, maybe trying to do it, we SR6 zap the Godhead into a manageable, acceptable, palatable size God that fits perfectly with us. And during this last week, came across a very interesting verse, Psalm 50, verse 21. In the middle of it, it says, you, uh, speaking of mankind, you thought that I, God, was altogether like you. Isn't that interesting? You thought that I was altogether like you. Here's the wonderful thing about that. God knows us really well, and He knows our creative ability to shrink Him, to make Him look very much like, well, ourselves. True? We just kind of have that ability to be able to do that, and frankly, coming off of the series through the book of Judges, I think that was the core thing that was going wrong with God's people in the book of Judges. God became a manageable entity that they could control, and they could then shape him into being what they wanted him to be, and much like themselves, and God became just like them, and so they could do whatever they wanted. 
But instead, we don't want to be that, right? We don't want to be that kind of people. We want to see God for all of who He is and how great He is and not zap Him and shrink Him. So we've seen, we've so far touched on when He's bigger than my mission. We've touched on when He's bigger than my daily grind. Last Sunday, when He's bigger than my expectations of who He is. And today, we're on the topic of when He is bigger than my expectations of life. Of life. So open your Bibles to Genesis 37. Genesis 37. Uh, I want to let you know these first four Sundays really are kind of setting the table for us. Uh, They're laying groundwork kinds of Sundays. Uh, Starting next Sunday, we're going to narrow in. But these four Sundays are key for us to be able to grab a hold of how to live out uh, making God really big. And we need to understand in that 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 God's called us to walk, to, to, to walk with Him. God's called us to a mission, His mission. And in that all, we, we realize that He is far bigger than who we think He is. And that means that even the small, ongoing, daily grind, mundane, work in, work out things of life matter. We saw that with Noah. And um, today's kind of the last piece of laying the groundwork. Then next Sunday, we're going to start getting into some details how this flows out in areas of life, such as uh, when he is bigger than my past, when he's bigger than my failures, when he's bigger than my fears, when he's bigger than my insecurities. We're going to be working those out. And in fact, next week is going to be when he's bigger than my death. He's bigger than my death. Well, today, he's bigger than my expectations of life, and with all these, I'm trying to put flesh to it. I'm trying to put a person to each of these, and so last Sunday was Noah. This Sunday is Joseph. We meet Joseph in chapter 37. You probably have some familiarity with Joseph. If you don't know much at all about Joseph, I'm telling you, today you're going to know the whole story. Yes, do you see in your notes? It's Genesis 37 to 50. We're covering the whole booger. All right? And by the way, I am so excited and encouraged because this, you don't know about this kind of stuff. Maybe you do. Maybe you watch me. But I usually work off of like a sheet that has four pages on it. And so this is the front two pages of that. And this is the back two pages of that. And uh, does that mean anything with time? I have no idea. Here we go. So I'm going to say this, if you're not used to having a Bible on your lap, I really want to encourage you to do that today, because we are going to be covering a lot of text. You will learn far more if you have a Bible on your lap, so grab one. If you don't have one, look on with a neighbor. Uh, We're going to be all over these chapters reading a lot in it, Um, so here we go. And by the way, I'll note this, for anyone who has or is or who will experience desertion, disappointment, devastation in life. This is your Sunday. And right now, many of you are going, well, isn't that all of us? Uh, Yep. Yep. So here we go. Genesis chapter 37. We meet Joseph. I'm going to read quite a bit of the chapter. So here we go. Let's meet Joseph. Let's actually begin in verse 2. There are the generations of Joseph. Joseph being how old? Don't forget that. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy. Uh, I kind of don't like that term in there because he's 17 years old, right? He's a young man. Uh, he was with the sons of Bilhal and Zippal, 
his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, who's his dad, Israel Jacob is the same person here. Now Jacob, Israel, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. All right, say problem. Yeah, uh, not a good situation in the home, right? Now that would be okay if you had one child. Okay, like you loved them more than any others that you don't have. Uh, but he had many others, and something's going on here between dad and Joseph. Uh, and by the way, he says because he was the son of his old age, he's kind of the youngest son. Actually, there was a younger one, but we won't get into that. And he made him a robe of many colors. Now, maybe you've heard about or seen the Broadway play, The Coat of Many Colors. Not quite the same story, okay, uh, in it, but it's coming off of that. So dad makes Joseph this special coat, gives it to his brothers. Joseph, let's call him the youngest brother in all this. And, and listen, I so relate to Joseph in so many ways because I was the youngest brother of three. And I am telling you, if my dad, they always said mom and dad loved me more, and they did, he, they did. And, but, you know, if, if my brothers were here right now, and if they were to come back and it's like, dad made you a coat not like anything like we ever got, I would understand why that would be a problem, right? Okay, so add that into the list. Joseph is in kind of this weird situation with his dad, uh, verse 4, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. Now, that's not a good response. It's not a right response. But I will say this. I think we could understand um, with that. And I think we'll understand why here more in just a second. And he could not speak peacefully to him. So there's dysfunction in this home, right? Every family is dysfunctional, by the way. It's called sin, Okay, and just in their home it is too. Verse 5, now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Why? Because he said to them, hey guys, I could just see it as the youngest brother. This would have been so me, just not with it. Uh, Hey guys, uh, hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, uh, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. (laughs) I'm telling you, that is a call to be pummeled by the older kin, all right? And there's a part of this, you go, Joseph, what are you doing? What are you doing? Oh, but Joseph's so smart, he doesn't stop there, just like so often happens with the younger one. Um, and I can say that because I was. Uh, verse 8, his brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. The hating is building. Verse 9, then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers, no, Joseph, just zip it, dude. Just keep it to yourself. Keep it between you and the Lord. But no, I think we could agree the 17-year-old is being a bit bratty here. And he told it to his brothers and he said, behold, guys, I, I dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, the 11 stars, by the way, there are 11 brothers, 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him. Yeah, rightly so. Son, look in my eyes. Stop acting foolish, right? Stop this. 
And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Very interesting. Verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said, So here I am. And, and so he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and your flock. Bring me word. He's the youngest one. They're all out. So he sends the youngest one to find what's going out there. I don't want to assume anything's in there. But it is a little bit odd in there. Maybe Joseph was just bored. I have no idea, verse 18. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to what? Okay, I think we could all agree. Frustration in the family, irritation by the little brother. Dude, come on, stop acting like an idiot here, right? But, but I think we would all agree none of this deserves being killed. Okay, uh, brattiness happens, but brattiness does not equate to your death. Okay, uh, we may say it like I just, uh, but it's like no, it does not equate to his death. But for real, his brothers are truly conspiring to kill him. Verse nineteen, they said to one another, "Here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. So now they lie and make it up, and we will see what will become of his dreams." Little punk. Verse twenty-one. But when Reuben, I'd hate that sandwich name, but when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, uh, let us not take his life. And, and Reuben said to them, good for him by the way, shed no blood, cast him into the pit here in the wilderness. That's a little more ethical. Uh, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. Verse 23, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe. By the way, put yourself in Joseph's shoes right now. You are just obeying your dad. You're just doing what your dad told you to do. And all of a sudden you come up and here the brothers are grabbing you and stripping you and, uh, of the robe thing. And it's like, okay, maybe we're all playing a game. I mean, we used to have literally, we would have bare-fisted boxing matches <laughs> in our family room. Maybe I shouldn't say that stuff, but, but as little kids, until I got hurt and called for mom. That's usually what happened with it. And then <laughs> they tore the robe off of him, and they took him, and they cast him into a pit. The pit was empty, and there was no water. And most likely, obviously, this is a well. This isn't like six feet down, eight feet down, ten feet down. This is probably quite a ways down. They throw him in. At what point does Joseph all of a sudden realize this is not a game. They're not teasing me. They're not punking me. Something's going down here. At what point in that does it turn to this place? Hey, listen, this is really important because we can read through these stories and lose the emotion. At what point is it when Joseph is all of a sudden like, whoa, I have no idea what just happened here down in this pit, but I don't think they're just playing you know, a game on me anymore. Verse 25, they sat down to eat. How callous. They sat down to eat and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum and balm and myrrh and on their way to carry it down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, hey, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Yeah, great thinking, dude. 27, come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him. Yeah, somehow then we won't be like guilty of this for he's our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listened to him. Bad choice. Then Midianite 
the traders passed by and they drew Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. At what point in time? In the conversation, in the movement of it, does it hit Joseph? Holy moly, what is going on here? Is it as they're beginning to walk away and he's looking back at his brothers? Are you kidding me? Listen, friends, it's one thing to have someone sell you out. It's another thing when it's your own family, your own brothers, and they watch you being hauled away into slavery. At what point in time, I'm going to say it this way, does this poor 17-year-old just, how do you even explain it? I would fix to say that Joseph never thought Never expected life to be this, right? Joseph's 17-year-old situation. 17. And he's sold for being favored. I think I could even justify it's not his fault. I don't care what he's done, but he did not deserve this. Agreed? The jealousy, the hatred, the abandonment. He's not just thrown under the bus. He's sold into slavery by his brothers. So not fair. I don't know, maybe here in some way. There are some people here that in some way can relate to this personally having experienced being abandoned by parents or siblings or a spouse. But I think we all can get it. Never would have expected that. Turn to Genesis 39. Genesis 39, we pick up at verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar... An officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who brought him down there. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. Let me just make a very transparent, very honest comment with you here. There's something that rubs me wrong with that as a human. He's been sold out by his brothers as a slave, and yet here the Lord is with him. I'm just talking on a five-foot, six-foot-off-the-ground level just open with you. True? I mean, you look at this and you're like, why wasn't the Lord with him back there? Right? And in it, it's like, okay, okay, it said, but, but, but uh, our thoughts are not his thoughts. His means are not our means. His goals are not our goals. 
And I'm trying to help us to relate into this, the reality of how we in our humanity seek to relate to a God in life situations. And in it, I'll just note, the Lord was with Joseph. Super cool, but there's something confusing in the very core of who we are about that at the same time. But let's keep going. Verse 3, his master saw that the Lord was with him. That's cool. And the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. Go down uh, to the next paragraph, uh, uh, right before verse 7. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Who cares? Well, you'll find out here in just a second. Because someone does, actually. Verse 7, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Okay, I don't need to say a whole lot about that, right? Right? Okay, it's kind of awkward. But at the same time, I just don't want to fly by it. This isn't right, right? Okay. It's not supposed to happen like that. Uh, Verse 8, But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. Hold on a second. Because he's now more than 17 at this point, and he's been cast away, and he's thrown, and then all of a sudden this woman comes after him, and and let's just be real about it. That's what we seek to be around here. Let's just be real about it. He had every opportunity to be able to make life a little bit happier than what he was getting, right? I mean, I would think that there's a potential for a person in this situation to begin getting bitter at God. God, you ripped me. So, hey, let's go, girl. That's just being real. But he's saying no. Verse 9. He's saying, no, he is greater in this house than I am. Uh, He is not greater in the house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness? And look at this, underline this, and sin against God. Is that not cool? Hey, here's a teen, here's a young man who's been, in in our terms, gypped by life, and yet here he is standing for what is right before a woman coming after him. He has every opportunity, everything set in place. This could have all gone down. But yet, how can I sin against my God? Man, there's so much right there, right? In so many aspects of life, struggle with lust and thoughts. How can I sin against my God? Verse 10, and as she spoke to Joseph, day after day, you need to understand this. Oftentimes, this is read and talked about like it happened once. You know, it's like she was just kind of in a mood and, and, you know, okay, I'm leaving it at that. And, uh, and day after day. And here's my question. At what day does this young man finally just say, bag it, I've been gypped. Let's go, girl. Day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, none of the men of the house were there in the house, and she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. This is one of the other days. And so he ran 
left his garment in her hand. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house, she called the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. We know this is all a lie, right? And so as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. And then she laid up his garment by her until her master came home, just creepy all around. And she told him the same story. Verse 19. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. I can understand that. And Joseph's master took him, put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. By the way, it was a pit. It was a pit. Here's Joseph's next life deal. Punished for doing right. He's punished for doing what is right. He honors the Lord. He stands strong in his holiness and his set-apartness. And for it, he's punished. By the way, he doesn't just lose his job. He's thrown into a jail pit. So unfair, right? I'll just say, have you ever experienced being punished for doing right? You can understand some of this. So we keep going on in Joseph's story. Turn to look to chapter 40 there. Let me pick up the end of 39, verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Something's going on here with the Lord and Joseph. And yet as a human, it's kind of like something's also not fitting in this. The Lord is with him in one way, but if the Lord was with him, wouldn't the Lord make his life comfortable and easy? I mean, isn't that what God's supposed to do? I mean, isn't it supposed to be that when you come to Jesus, all of a sudden, next week, you're going to get a check, a check in the mail for like $300,000? I mean, isn't it supposed to be, if, if, you, if you know Jesus Christ, that nothing bad should ever happen to you? Isn't, isn't that what it's supposed to be? I'm telling you, that's the gospel that is often preached in our world today. Compare that with this. Oh, but it's all going to turn out good. Have that counseling moment with Joseph right there. Yeah. The keeper of, in, of the prison put Joseph in charge of the prisoners who were in prison. And whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. And the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. What a guy of character. Because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Chapter 40, sometime after this, the cupbearer, the king of Egypt, and his baker committed an offense against their Lord, not the Lord, but the king of Egypt, and Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, so the chief cupbearer and the chief baker put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. And, And the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. Understand, he's not over them, he's like these guys' servant. Okay? And they continued for some time in custody. And then one night, 
They both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker, and the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces so downcast today? And they said, we've had dreams and there is no one to interpret them for us. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? This dude is awesome. I mean, how just, he, that's on his head, just where the Lord is. So please tell them to me. So the cupbearer told him his dreams to Joseph and said to him, here's the thing, the, the importance of the dream is not important for today. Go to verse 13. In three days, Pharaoh, he's telling him what will happen, will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me. Verse 14. By the way, I think that's really wise. I mean, he's telling them the dream, and he's also inserting some personal stuff in here. By the way, only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh so to get me out of this house. Look at this, by the way. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Friends, that is huge to understand. Joseph is not sitting in the pit of jail and going like, you know, it's a glorious day with the Lord. You know, it's just all really good. I love this. Let's just sing happy songs. I don't think that's what's going on at all. He's wrestling through this. He knows this. He knows he was sold by his brothers into prison as a, as a slave. He knows that he had helped or, or in this, he, he had, uh, uh, was punished for doing what was right. He knows these kinds of things. He knows why he's there. He knows it's unfair and unfair. And so in it, he's saying, would you remember me? And by the way, wouldn't you think that they would remember him with this? And he interprets the dream of the chief baker. They go back, go down to verse 22. But he hanged the chief baker. <laughs> That's happy. Um, that was part of the dream as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer who came back into the king's service did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Now there's part of this where you hear that and you go, you know, maybe it was he got so involved and he knew, but he didn't want to bring it up. I actually think in this, we'll see here in just a minute, I actually think in this Joseph was out of his mind. Just gone, just disappeared. And so what happens here? Third time, Joseph life deal. Forgotten after helping. Forgotten after helping. By the way, it's not like you helped an elderly woman across the road. He's in jail, in a pit. And Joseph here ministers to someone and pours himself into them and just simply ask, hey, when you get out, would you remember me? And he gets ditched and dumped. By the way, it's now been right about 11 years since he was abandoned in Genesis 37. That means he's 28 years old. 11, 11 years. Not days, not 11 weeks, not 11 months. 11 years.
And I just asked the question, why is God allowing this? And by the way, I understand what Romans 8, 28, and 29 say. I understand that God is sovereign and the story is going to go somewhere. But I have to ask this question. Why is it that God is allowing 11 years of this? I don't get it. Oh, yeah. His thoughts are higher. His means are greater. His goals are superior. And I still don't get it. But his thoughts are higher. His means are greater. His goals are superior. And I still don't get it. And that's okay. Because I will never fully understand his thoughts. I will never fully get his means. I will never fully grasp his goals. But in the confusion, we know that he is greater and we continue in that. That's what faith is. That's what faith is. Even when I don't get it, I know who he is, and I continue to press ahead for his glory. Chapter 41, verse 1, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed. Just stop there. Two whole years. So now in this, it's been some 13 years, some 13 years. Sold, punished, forgotten. By the way, sold by family, punished by ones he served faithfully, and by the way, forgotten by friends he had established a relationship with. And here, after all this time, now two whole years after being forgotten, go down to verse 5, and Pharaoh fell asleep and dreamed a second time. Go to verse 8. So in the morning, his spirit, Pharaoh's spirit, was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember... I remember my offenses today. Hey, when, when Pharaoh was angry with his servants, put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I each having a dream with its own interpretation. And there was this young Hebrew, that's right, was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. And, and, when, he, and when we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving us an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. <laughs> just like he said would happen. 14, then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph. I bet he did. And they quickly br brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. By the way, didn't he didn't just grab him out of the pit, stinky in the whole deal, and send him in front of Pharaoh. No, that wasn't happening. It's like, I'll wait till he smells better. Okay, and he comes forward. So here's what's going on. Joseph's life circumstance, now he's called from the pit. 
Okay, getting hopeful here, but I'm still laying on the table. Why 13 years of all that? Could God not have gotten Joseph in this place some other way? Is God not big enough to make that happen? By the way, we're going to get to the end of this story, and I am going to conclude with you. I do not know why God had 13 years of that for Joseph. I still don't know. But here's what I do know. His thoughts are higher. His means are greater. His goals are superior. And that's what we hang on to. And it's okay. Part of this is I just, over the years, I've just seen people as they go through hard times of life, they wrestle with the confusion. And then it's kind of like given this idea that you should never be confused in Christ. Be confused. Because when we are not confused... His thoughts are not higher. His means are not greater, and his goals are not superior. They are SR6 apple-sized in my hand, and now I understand all that God is and what he's doing. No, 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 blow that up and get confused and be okay with it. That is what faith is, resting in him. In times of confusion. Called from the pit. Let's go down to verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. By the way, how cool is that? I mean, you are before the king of the world at this time. Human world. And, and he says, God has revealed to Pharaoh. Just what a cool, what a cool dude. Hey, millennials, be like this guy. Serious about that. Verse 28. It is as I told you, Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Go to verse 32. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man. <laughs> I love this. And set him over the land. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. There's going to be seven plentiful years and then seven drought years. Verse 35, and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh for the food in the cities and let them keep it that food shall... Uh, be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are, are to occur in the land so that the land may not perish through the famine. Verse 37, the proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the th into the throne will I be greater than you. Verse 46, Joseph was how old? 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. I have to say in all this, how cool is this? But I am not going to let 13 years of all of that also losing this. By the way, you do need to hear this. This text and narrative is telling what God did with Joseph's life. But what is about to happen is not a promise that it will happen to everybody's life. That's called prosperity gospel talk. Let's be real about it. 
because there have been people all over the world, over the times of history, who have died in jail for loving God. Okay? What we are about to read is not a promise that everything's going to turn out great. That's the Americanized scriptures. Instead, what's going to happen, God in this instance raised this guy out of the pit, put him before Pharaoh, and now he's prime minister of Egypt. His thoughts are not my thoughts. His means are not my means. His goals and ways are not mine, right? Not at all. Turn to Genesis uh, 45. The time goes on. You can read the accounts. Just a couple verses here. A couple more to go after that. His, his brothers, his family, uh, show up in this whole story. Dad, Jacob, Israel, sends the brothers to Egypt to get food because it's during the famine. And all of a sudden, in it, dink, they come before Joseph. I won't go into the story of all that. Just verse 4, chapter 45. So Joseph said to his brothers, they don't know who he is because he's like 37 by now, 38. It's been 20 years. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother. Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Can you imagine their heart rate right at that moment? And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Hey, friends, know that. Their whole intent was to sell them. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. By the way, take that one and have that conversation in the free will predestination discussion. It's a great text for it. Know this, friends. Ten years ago, when he was in the pit, ten years before that, when he's a slave, Joseph had no idea that this was going to happen. And now when he looks back, and aren't those moments when you look back and you see what a sovereign God has done in the moving of your life involved even with the choices of people, a sovereign God and the choices of people, yep, I'm leaving it there, and people are going on through with life and then they're coming along with it all, and then all of a sudden you look back at certain times and you go, oh my word, is that not the coolest thing how God has been involved in the steps of my life? I didn't know that here, and I didn't know it here, and I didn't know it here, and I didn't know it here. But man, when you come to these kind of moments, is that not really, really cool? I don't know if you've had some of those at times where it's like, I cannot believe now the whole cycle of the last 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 40 years, actually, I can see what the Lord's been doing. Turn to chapter 50. Because maybe Joseph just had a good day there. 
we go to chapter 50, our last passage. Verse 19. Verse 19, but Joseph said to them, this is again, some things happen, they're back again, said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? By the way, might I encourage you to consider Psalm 50, 21. You thought I was altogether like you. That was not Joseph. Because Joseph is saying, I am not altogether like God. You see? That changes everything. Because when God is altogether like me, God thinks like me, functions like me, works like me, goals like me, and when God doesn't do those things like me, then I see life come along and I get frustrated as all get out because life is not happening the way it should happen, the way I perceive it and see it. But when God is altogether different than me, even when I don't see it, I don't get it, I don't understand it, I never expected that, he did. And he fully knows. And even though I don't get it, his thoughts are higher, his means are greater, his goals are superior. Uh, But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. And they did. I love the honesty in it. He's not like, by the way, guys, when you sold me into slavery, this is my chance to say, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for loving me like that. That's not what's happening here. He's saying the truth of it. Listen, guys, you did mean evil to me. You did that, but God is so big and so beyond and so on top of it that even when I don't get it and I don't like it and I don't want it and I never expected it, And when it's not fair, he's got it. And that's all I can cling on to. I'm not going to shrink him down to the size of an apple. I'm going to let him stay big. Because my expectations of life are not his. God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. But I am going to get you back. I'm going to smack you upside the head. And I'm going to make you pay. He doesn't say that. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them. And spoke kindly to them. How could anyone do that? They can do that because they know his thoughts are higher. His means are greater. And his goals are superior. And even though I never liked it, wanted it, expected it, in it all, God is at work. God is at work. And friends, it's the same for you. It's the same for you. 
Here is a young man, a man now, who is saddled on God's sovereignty. By the way, nowhere in the text is it teaching as a, what would be kind of called as a confirming truth for every person. He's not saying, see in it, everything in life will eventually work out for your happiness. He's not saying that, okay? But what he is saying is he's saying that, hey, I serve a God that gets it. And because he has it, in the pain, in the hurt, in the confusion, and in all the lost expectations, I can hang on to him because he is bigger than all of my life expectations put together. So what does it look like to live life seeing the Lord is bigger? Well, so far, I would suggest to you Noah, Abraham, and Joseph. And here with Joseph, don't shrink God. Here's what we do. When we make life big, God becomes small. When we make life the deal, God becomes small. When we make God big, life fits in properly. Because it's all about God. Hey, friends, let me remind you. If you're in Christ, you need to know this. This is not our home. And this is not the end of the story. This is just a dot on the line of eternity. This is just for a moment. And if it means sold into slavery, die in jail, hey, I'm telling you, rock on for the rest of eternity with the Lord if you know Christ. I'm telling you. By the way, next week, he is bigger than my death. He is bigger than my death. Don't shrink the Lord. Don't make life the thing. I'm telling you, we all know this. Life will only desert you, disappoint you, and devastate you. That's what we should expect of life. Boy, Doug, you're a downer. No, I'm just real about it from what Scripture says. Life is God's playing field to make Him great. And when we try to think that life and the things of life, our career of life, the people of life, the others of life, the the bling and the glitz and glam of life, if we come to think that life can, can satisfy what we want, we're in trouble. It will only disappoint. It will only destruct you. But when we come to understand that what we have been created to want is eternity with God... And that's a coming. And so for the time, we press ahead, we walk ahead, Ephesians 4, we go having, as we talked about, and we know that all of life matters. It's not about just getting rid of life and waiting until eternity. It's no, now walk with the Lord now. We press ahead with that, even in the mundane like Noah, and we realize that God is bigger than who we are, and life is not the golden nugget. He is. Because he is bigger. And I'm just asking you today, and I'm finishing with this. Let's work to get our lives, our eyes off of life and our eyes onto him. Let's be less enamored with the beauty of life and let's be enamored with him. And when we are enamored with him, life becomes 
beautiful. Philippians 3. But whatever was, to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Paul goes on to say, got to start over. Lost. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss in, in light of knowing Christ. That's the point. Let's know Christ. Lord, I'm going to leave it there. Um, thank you for the fact that your word is not just filled with like a teaching text, and it does have that, but it is filled with the stories of real people. It's filled with the stories of real people that have lived in real times and real situations and real circumstances. And over the years, I, I, I have so come to love the narrative of Scripture because the narrative of Scripture shows life as it happens. And, and you've put it there that we can relate to it, we can see it. And, and here's this young man, this 17-year-old man that grows into, into, into an older man who, who went through times of life, I'm going to bet, that are greater and harder than probably anyone in this room when it's all added up. And yet he did not bag you he did not get bitter with you. Oh God, we know he had to struggle. Oh my word, he must have had rough, rough times of discouragement and despair and confusion. And we can relate to that, Lord. So I thank you for including these in here. They're here to help us. And as we seek to ask the question, what does it look like to live when you are bigger? We look to these individuals of Scripture and, and see how they lived and what they learned. And God, I thank you that we get to spend time with a young man and a grown man that sets an example for us to To see you big and not this present life. There's a lot of wonderful things about this present life and a lot of wonderful opportunities. But ultimately, in and of themselves, just like Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, it's chasing after the wind. It's all vanity. But you, you are forever. And you have created us to be forever beings. And you have put within us a desire to want to be with you forever. And God, I pray in this time of redemptive history that we reside, in this spiritual war zone that we live in, that you would help us to press ahead. Eyes on you, not forgetting eternity. God, I want to especially pray for anyone in this room right now. That isn't a real 
hurting point. I ask that the Spirit of God would use the Word of God and just love on them. In Christ's name, amen.